Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning, Haynes Creek. I hope you are doing well. It is a joy to be with you worshiping today. And, and as I said, my name is Travis. I'm the pastor here. Uh, if it is your first time, just want to say a special welcome to you. We are, uh, we're thrilled and excited that you are our guest today. And we just want to let you know how much we love and appreciate you. And, and if you wouldn't mind, before you head home, I'd love for you to stop by uh, our welcome table, table right out there as you go back out into the gym. We have a free gift we'd love to put in your hand today. Uh, there's also uh, a little welcome card if you wouldn't mind filling that out. Uh, really, that that's just for me, and it gives me a chance to reach out and say thank you for your visit. So if you do me that favor, I would really appreciate that. And uh, you catch us at a good time. We uh, started just last week a brand new sermon series, walking verse by verse through the book of Ruth. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Ruth chapter one. Uh, we're going to finish out chapter one today. If you don't have a Bible, it's it's all good. I have Bibles on the table. Again, our welcome table right out there in the hallway. Uh, as you go home today, feel free to grab one of those Bibles as our gift to you. And, and again, you can uh, always follow along on the screen right here behind me. So Ruth chapter one, and as, as you're turning there, I've told y'all, and, and those of you that have been here, you know that, that my family has a dog. We, we got a puppy in October. Uh, the kids especially had been asking, Dad, we want a dog, we want a dog, we want a dog. And against my better judgment and wisdom, I finally caved and we got a dog in October. Uh, she was born in August, got her in October, and, and now in April, she's about eight months old. And, and her name is Winnie. Uh, she's a Cavapoo, which is part Poodle and part King Charles Cavalier. Didn't know those existed, but my daughter, Livy, has bad dog allergies, and this was the one breed that like she doesn't react to. So that's what we got. So we have a dog, and uh, me and the dog, we have a uh, we have we have a, a, a love. Uh, somewhat annoyance kind of relationship with each other. She drives me crazy, and and I'm sure I drive her crazy. Uh, but I'm, I'm I'm I work from home most weeks, and uh, and so she's with me during the day. And uh, you know she's pretty chill during the day because it's just me there. And you know again we kind of keep our distance from one another. And and uh, but as soon as my wife comes home with our two oldest kids from school, man, she is just off the chain, excited, wild, crazy, jumping all over the place, running all over the place, getting every toy she possibly can find, just being a while, like it's a puppy, right? You had a puppy, you know, they have just a bunch of energy. Well, uh, this past week we, it was time for her to get spayed. So I, I took her to the vet and I uh, got her checked out, got her ready, got that appointment booked. And, and, you know, I, I, I've, this is only the second dog I've ever had. And the first one was a boy dog. So girl dog, I'm like, you know, this is a little different. So I'm like, Hey, tell me what's the recovery process. What do I need to be on the lookout for? What do we do? And they're like, Oh yeah, it takes about 10 to, to 14 days to fully heal and recover from the surgery. I was like, okay, well, what do we need to do during that time? They're like, Oh, you know, just, just keep her relaxed and keep her calm and, and no running around, no playing. And I was just like, you do realize that this is a puppy. Like, this is impossible, okay? Like, you're asking me to do the impossible. But here we are. We've, we've been going for a week, and we're trying to keep her calm, and she's just like, forget all that. I don't care. I'm jumping wherever I want to, running around. But we've had to, uh, you know, dogs, they, they, they lick the wound. You can't have them do that, so you get the, the cone, right? You got to put the cone of shame, and that's what she's been wearing. So I have a picture to show you guys just how pitiful she looks, if we can get that up there. That's her. That's her. I know. Don't be fooled by her cuteness. All right. She's terrible. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but that's her. She wears this cone of shame. And it's just a reminder, right, of the surgery, of her pain, of, of what's happened to her, right? That's just a display for everybody. I had some people in our house this week and they saw the dog like, oh, something happened to the dog. That's why she's wearing that thing. I was like, yeah, that's exactly right. Something happened. She got spayed. Like, it's just a clear reminder 
of what she's gone through. And that's what brings us to Ruth chapter one. And you're probably like, that's crazy. What are you even talking about? I know we'll, we'll loop this all in together. You'll see where we're going. But this is, this brings us to Ruth chapter one. And when we, when we start out in the book of Ruth, what we, what we learn very quickly is the book of Ruth is all about zooming in really close to this one particular family. It's all about what happens to them and what the Lord does in their life. But when we start out in, in Ruth chapter one, what we saw last week was, was this story starts out with a lot of pain and tragedy. It tells us the story of Naomi and, and her husband Elimelech. And, and it starts out in the middle of this famine in the land of Judah. So this is a family from Bethlehem living in Bethlehem. And there's this horrible famine. So much that they feel that, that it's, it's necessary to leave Bethlehem, to leave Israel and go to the neighboring country of Moab where there's food. And that's just something that, that Israelites did not do, right? God went through great leaps and bounds to bring them into the promised land and said, I want you to stay here. And for them to leave that, man, it had to be just a gut-wrenching decision. They had to be so desperate that that felt like their only choice. They finally, they leave for Moab. And in Moab, yes, they find food, but things quickly go from bad to worse. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies in the land of Moab, and she's left with her two sons. And then, and then her, her two sons, they marry Moabite women, another thing that, that Israelites just were not supposed to do, but that's that we're living in Moab. This is the only option that we have. So they marry Moabite women, and then 10 years go by, and we find out that tragically, Naomi's two sons die as well. So Naomi has left her homeland. She's gone to a foreign nation where her husband dies and then her two sons die. And after 10 years, her, her sons did not have any children of their own. And, and now she's left with her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. And word comes to Naomi that there's, there's now food back in Bethlehem. So we, we ended last week with Naomi making the journey from Moab back to Bethlehem. And along the road, she stops and she tells her two daughters-in-law, look, you guys, there's nothing good coming to you in Bethlehem, right? When, when I get back to Bethlehem, I am, am going to live out the rest of my days as a widow. I'm past my childbearing years. I've got no hope of finding a husband, which means that you guys have even less chances of finding a husband, right? As soon as Ruth and Orpah come into Bethlehem and they've got strikes against them, they're a widow, they're a foreigner. And after 10 years of marriage with no children to show for it, everyone would draw the conclusion you are incapable of having children. There's not a long line of men ready to marry a woman like that in this time. So, so Naomi knows, man, if you come with me, it's gonna be bad. Y'all need to stay here and start your lives over again. And Orpah, after some pleading from Naomi, we see that she does turn back and go back to Moab. But Ruth makes this bold declaration and commitment to Naomi, right? Her powerful words of wherever you go, I'll go. Where you die, I'll die. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. She has committed herself to Naomi. And Naomi takes her decision and, and they continue on their way to Bethlehem. And that's where we pick up the story. So Ruth chapter 1 Starting in verse 19, we're only going to read until the end here, which is verse 22. So just a few verses today. We read this starting in verse 19. It says, The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival. And the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? 
So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Okay, so what's, what's going on here? So they arrive into Bethlehem, and it says that the whole town's excited. What that kind of means is the whole town is, is talking about this. So we know from the, the Christmas carol, oh, little town of Bethlehem, right? It's a, it's a small town. That's the reason we sing that. It's, it's a tiny little town in the land of Judah with nothing town, like nothing really happening there. Like it's a, it's a small, tight-knit community. I mean, very similar to, to where we are, Oxford, Covington, very much a small town feel where we all kind of know each other. We all kind of know the stories. We know who's coming in and who's coming out. Like we, we know when somebody comes back into town, right, after being away for a while. That's exactly what's happening here. Everybody's talking about it. Like, hey, Naomi's back. Naomi's back. You hear Naomi's back? She's back. She's back. And they say, can, can this be... Naomi. And that could be that it's just, you know, after 10 plus years, she comes back and she looks a little different. I don't know if you've, you've had that happen where you run into somebody you haven't seen them in years and they just look, look totally different, right? That happened to me uh, back in August. I, I was going to my daughter's preschool. We started our new school and they had this parents day and I walk in and there's another parent there. And apparently this was somebody that I knew from high school, did not recognize her at all. And all of a sudden she addresses me at Travis and I was like, how do you know my name? I don't know you. What were you talking? She's like, it's Whitney from, from back. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I knew that was you. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew that. I was, what are you talking about? Of course I knew. I had no idea. No idea. She just looked completely different. So I don't know if you had that. That might be what's going on. It also could be that, that after 10 plus really hard years in Moab, it's just her pain and her grief and her loss have taken a toll on her. And people are recognizing, man, Naomi, Naomi came back different. And she confirms this. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. And this is significant what's going on here because in, in the Hebrew culture especially, names meant a great deal. Names really spoke to your identity. When parents gave you a name, it meant something. It meant, it's not like with my parents, they picked Travis because they knew a Travis at the time that I was born. They're like, he seems like a nice guy. Let's name our son Travis. Like, okay, cool. That's why I'm named Travis. Not, not a great story, right? Like very boring. So, but in this culture, like it wasn't, it wasn't that way. Like they chose names specifically to give their child an identity. And Naomi's name means pleasant and sweet. And by all accounts, that's probably what her personality was like. She probably was a very pleasant and sweet woman. But now that's no longer the case. Now she comes back and she says, my name's not sweet and pleasant anymore. Now my name is Mara. And that word Mara comes from the Hebrew word for bitter. She says, no longer am I Naomi. No longer am I sweet and pleasant. Now I'm bitter. You call me bitter. That's my name. That's who I am now. I'm bitter. Now why is Naomi bitter. She gives four reasons and, and they're all pointed at God. Look, look back at these, these verses. She's, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. She says, I'm bitter because God made me this way. I'm bitter because of all that I've lost and, and it's God's fault. He made me bitter. She says, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. Brought me back empty. I was full. I had a husband. I had two sons and now I've got nothing. I've got nothing. I'm empty. She says, why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has opposed me. Another way to translate that is the Lord has testified against me. The Hebrew word that's used there brings this idea of a legal declaration of guilt. She's saying the Lord has looked over my life and he's brought me a, a judgment on me. He's, he's brought a wrathful judgment upon me. And I don't know why. I don't know why. 
He's opposed me. He's opposed me. He's testified against me. And then she says, lastly, the Almighty has afflicted me. That word for afflicted means to bring on calamity, disaster, tragedy. Naomi's bitter. And she's bitter at God. She's bitter at God. She's bitter about how her life has played out. The tragedy, the pain, the loss that she's walked through has made her bitter. And as we talked about last week, Naomi is in a patriarchal society where where men ruled the day. Women had very little rights, very little voice, were not able to really do anything without a man doing it for them. It's a, it's a very much a, a man-ruled society. So when she loses her husband and her two sons, her life is over. She feels like her life is over. She's too old to find another husband. Nobody's going to want to marry her. See, when Naomi buried her husband and her two sons, especially after her two sons passed away, it's almost as if Naomi was buried in that moment too. She feels like her life is done. She's going to live out the rest of her days like the widows during this time, which meant that she would live out in poverty, struggling to get by, subject to to anybody wanting to take advantage of her in any number of ways. She had no rights and nobody to speak up for her. going to be trying to talk family members into helping her out and taking care of her for the rest of her life. This is where Naomi finds herself. And this is why many biblical scholars call Naomi the female Job. If you're familiar with the story at all of, of Job, we see in the book of Job where he just, he loses everything. And God allows that to happen, right? He loses everything. His family, his possessions, everything. It's all taken away from him. And that's how Naomi feels. That's what she sees in her life, that God has taken away everything. And it's easy to see why she feels that way, right? Like it's easy to see that and go, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get why you feel that way. She's bitter. She's bitter. She's Mara. And she's bitter at God. And look, as I was reading and studying, I found some people as they were commenting on this passage, kind of giving Naomi a bad rap. Like Naomi, yes, you're, you're dealing with pain and loss and tragedy, but how dare you point the finger at God? Like it kind of judging Naomi for this. And I, and I think that's unfair. I think that's unfair because I get why she feels this way. I think if many of us were in that situation or something similar, we would probably feel that way. Like, God, what's going on here? What'd you do? So she's hurting, she's grieving, she's dealing with a lot of pain and loss and, and she's bitter. And what we need to acknowledge in in this moment is, is yes, I think Naomi has good reason to feel the way that she feels, but bitterness, bitterness is a dangerous place to be. When we become bitter, it's exactly how Naomi feels. It it just, it becomes our identity. It becomes who we are. I don't know if you've ever been that way or been around somebody who has just become bitter and hardened as a reason. Maybe good reason for that, right? Maybe they've suffered a lot and you're like, man, I, I get it. But, but now you've become bitter and it, it, and it just, it spreads. Like it's just so toxic in our lives. It spreads and it infects everything. It brings resentment in our lives and in our hearts. It, it can ruin relationships with one another. It, it can prevent us from properly grieving and moving on in a healthy way. It's a dangerous place to be. But we need to realize it is that it's, it's, it's an easy place to get to especially if we walk through any semblance of the hardship that Naomi walks through here. Pain and suffering and evil and hardship, uh, they're going to touch our lives 
in one way or another as we walk this earth. I mean, every day we're confronted, maybe it's even in our lives or in the lives of those around us or even in, in the news, we're confronted with, with all the evil and brokenness and messiness in the world. This place can be very hard and difficult and dark. So I want today uh, to look at how, how do we respond when the brokenness of life touches us? How do we respond when we walk through seasons of hardship and suffering and difficulty? How, how do we walk through that in a, in a healthy way to not become bitter and resentful people? And specifically what I'm going to focus on today is, is spiritual bitterness, our relationship with the Lord, because that's where Naomi centers this. So we're not going to touch too much on or at all really about, you know, bitterness between relationships when somebody sins against us and there's harm done there. That's, that's a whole nother Paul game and a lot of bitterness and resentment can come from that. But today we're going to focus on our relationship with the Lord in these moments. Because again, that, that's where Naomi brings it. She points the finger at God and says, you did this. So that's what we're going to dig into today. So I know, very, very light and easy subject, right? I'm glad you guys came this morning for a nice, uplifting, encouraging message, right? Well, before we get that, we got to dig into maybe an even bigger question and, and maybe an even more important question. And, and that is because when we talk about evil and pain and suffering, it, it typically brings us up. Well, why does God allow that? Why does, does God, who supposedly in scripture is a good and gracious and loving God, why does he allow pain and suffering and evil to exist in this world? And that's a, that's a common question. It's a popular question. It's, it's a good question to ask and wrestle with because there is evil and pain and suffering in this world, right? Like it's clear and, and it's apparent and it's in our faces all the time. And again, sometimes it's very personal to us because we're walking through a season like that. And it's hard to comprehend why would God allow this to happen? So the charge usually goes something, the question usually goes something, well, if there is a God even, and if he is a good and loving and gracious God, like supposedly the Bible says, well, why does, there, why does he allow pain and evil and suffering? And a lot of times the conclusion can be, well, because there's evil and pain and suffering, well, clearly God doesn't exist. There's no such thing as God because if there was a God, why would he, why would he do this? And look, that, that's a, again, that, that's a very common question. And unfortunately, it's a question without a clean and easy answer, right? Theologians and atheists alike have been wrestling with this question for centuries. And often we, we ask this question because it, again, it's, it's personal. It's not so much, why does God allow just the, the random evil and stuff like that in the world, but, but, but it's more, why did God allow it to happen to me? So if you're in a conversation like that and that question comes up, I want you to know like that's typically coming from a very personal and wounded place. And again, there's, there's not an easy answer to that. I can't tell you or anybody why God allows the bad things to happen in our lives that, that happen. There's not an easy answer for that. Uh, John Piper, a uh, pastor, theologian for years and years and years, very, very smart man. Um, he says, there's, there's usually two reasons that we're looking for in, in a question like that. There's, there's the macro reasons, like the big picture, like what's really going on at a high level. And there's, there's the micro reasons that why is this happening to me? Those micro reasons, I can't answer. We can't answer. The Bible doesn't give us specifically, Travis, why did this happen to you? I, I don't know. Sometimes God gives us answers. Sometimes he doesn't, right? But the macro level, the, the higher level, the, you know, what, what is the Lord doing in these moments? Because what we see in scripture is yes, there's pain, evil, and suffering in this world, 
but our God uses that to accomplish his plan and his purpose. What we see in scripture is that pain and suffering and the evil and the brokenness that we see in this world is not purposeless. That as Romans 8, 28 tells us that God works all things together for his good and his purpose. All things includes the good and the bad. So John Piper, I'm going to steal this from him. I'll give him credit, but uh, he gives five reasons, five macro reasons for why God does allow and how he does use the pain and evil and brokenness. So let's, let's deal with this first, and then we'll get more into the personal side of things towards the end here. So the first, the first reason that we see that God uses or how he uses the evil in this world is, is for repentance, is for repentance. God does allow earthly consequences to touch our lives when we walk away from him and chase after sin, right? We see this even in practical things. So if I were to break the law today, if I were to go and, you know, run to Kroger and just steal a bunch of stuff, just walk out and run out and, and I got caught, I could be prosecuted. I, I, could, I could face jail time, right? Like that's, that's bad. That's difficult. That's, that's suffering in some ways. Like that's not a fun experience to go and do, but those are the consequences of my decision. So the Lord allows consequences to touch our lives so that he can lead us to repentance. And that way it feels like pain and suffering sometimes, but it's really God's grace. This is the whole point of church discipline, right? The Lord calls churches to call out the sin of their members and hold people accountable. And that's not fun, right? Nobody likes being told, hey, you're walking in sin, Travis. Time to wake up and come back to Jesus. That feels hurtful and painful. And I don't like hearing that, but that's God's grace in my life to lead me back to repentance. So repentance is one way he does this. Another way is reliance. God does allow pain and suffering in our lives so that he can deepen our reliance on him. We see this in 2 Corinthians 1 verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So whatever's going on in Paul's life right here and those that are with him, they were suffering so much that they wanted to die. That's what's going on. That's the level of pain and suffering they're experiencing. And here's what Paul writes so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Paul says the whole reason we're walking through this, or one of the reasons why we're walking through this, is so that we can deepen our reliance on God. And that's true, right? When we walk through difficult seasons, we come to the end of ourselves. we realize, man, I'm completely out of control in whatever's happening in my life right now. And we've got no other choice at that point but to, but to reach out and to hold tightly onto the Lord, right? Like that's sometimes what he does. Another way he uses pain and suffering is to build righteousness in our lives. God will use difficult seasons to purify us and make us more like Jesus. This is what we see at the beginning of places like 1 Peter. Peter writes to a group of Christians who are facing intense persecution for their faith. And he says, part of the reason why you're going through these trials is so that God will purify your faith he will refine it like gold in a fire. So sometimes he does it to, to deepen our walk with him, make us more like Jesus, increase our righteousness. Reward is, is the fourth big reason why how we see God use pain and suffering is to remind us of our reward. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. This is the same guy, Paul, writing. It's the same book that we just read verses from a minute ago, where he says the pain and suffering that he's dealing with makes us want to die. 
And now he says that that same suffering is, is light and momentary. Because in this moment, Paul is reminded of what's coming to him, the promise of eternal life, this absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. The suffering of this life reminds us that this world is not our home, that we have a far better end and eternity coming to us with Jesus. And the last one is, is just a reminder. It's a reminder. Jesus tells us over and over again that, that his followers will suffer just as he did. And the suffering in this life is a reminder that we share in the sufferings of Christ. Piper writes us, the suffering reminds us that God sent his son into the world to suffer so that our suffering would not be God's condemnation, but his purification. Philippians 3.10 says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. And this is the crazy, we don't have time to get into this, but this is a crazy juxtaposition that, that the New Testament presents is that when we go through these trials, when we go through sufferings, we are, especially when we suffer for the name of Jesus, if we're being persecuted, if we're being cast out, whatever, for the name of Jesus, we should count it joy that we're going through that. I mean, that's just that, I, we don't have time to do anything, but that's just mind blowing. Like how, how can you, you say that we should count it joy to suffer? Well, it's because we're, we're walking with Jesus. We're walking with Jesus, we're facing the same path that he did. And the Lord is using that. He uses these moments. So look, we, we, those are the big macro levels. And sometimes that, that helps. Usually if we're walking through a season of pain and suffering, we don't, want to see, we don't want to hear those answers, right? Like nobody wants to hear that. I certainly don't want to hear that in, in moments of hardship and, and pain and loss and grief. But hopefully in, in other moments, we, we can kind of see there, there is a larger plan at work. So we don't know the micro reasons, right? We don't know the, the why me, why right now, Lord? Why, why am I suffering for this long? But hopefully again, these, these macro reasons can help us see man, that there is a larger plan at work, that our God is doing something, that he is at work in whatever we have going on in our lives. So let's dig a little bit more personal here. Let, let's dig into a little bit more of, of Naomi's pain and grief, because again, this is far more personal for her and when we do walk through seasons of pain and suffering, it's very personal, right? Like, again, it's these micro reasons, God, why are you doing this to me? So how, how are we to respond when suffering and tragedy strikes our lives like it does Ruth and Naomi here? So I want to give you three things and we'll, we'll end for today. So three things about how to properly deal with our pain and our suffering and not live in the bitterness that, that Naomi finds herself in. The first one, and this is really important. This is a really important step. Your first, first point Acknowledge your pain and bring it to God. Acknowledge your pain and bring it to God. Again, this is, the, this is probably the most important step that we can take. We need to take this step if we are going to properly and healthfully grieve in moments of pain and loss and suffering and tragedy. We have to acknowledge our pain and bring it to God. And this is exactly where Naomi is in Ruth chapter one. Let's, let's read again how she describes her situation. Verse 20, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. She answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me. I mean, these words can seem jarring at times. When we read this and we try to center ourselves in this moment, if you're a friend of Naomi and she's talking like this, you might be like, whoa, whoa, what's going on? We don't have, 
we don't, we don't say things like that around here, right? Like we don't, we don't talk like that. Like it can seem jarring. Like I can't believe she's blaming God for her troubles. How, how dare she do that? And look, this is where our, our cultural Christianity that, that tends towards just this, this facade of everything's fine. This is where it gets us in trouble because what, what our cultural Christianity tends to, to lead us to believe is we've just got to pretend that everything's fine. Right? Like, I don't know about you, but I grew up hearing, man, man, when you witness to someone, you tell somebody that doesn't know Jesus, man, tell them how awesome things are with Jesus, right? Like, like clearly their lives are miserable because they don't have Jesus. So their marriage is probably terrible. Their kids are probably terrible. Their finances are probably all out of whack and they're just not living their best life now, right? Like, like you got to tell them like, man, with Jesus, everything's awesome and great. And it led us to believe, man, I got to pretend now that everything's awesome and great because guess what? Life is not always awesome and great. Amen. But now we feel this pressure to pretend like everything's fine. And even at church on Sundays, somebody's like, hey, how's it going? Psh, living my best life, living the dream. Everything's awesome. Meanwhile, you know that that is not true. Look, I'm not saying any of y'all do this, but maybe sometimes there's Sundays where it's a little stressful. Maybe you got kids, you got to get everybody breakfast, you got to get everybody dressed, you got to get everybody to church on time, because how dare you be late, right? Like you got to be here on time. And maybe, again, not saying anybody, maybe there's some words being exchanged between you and your spouse, you and your kids. Maybe there's some, some elevated talking, you know, you're not yelling, you're just talking sternly, right? Just, just, you know, saying how it is, whatever the case. Maybe there's, there's some arguing, there's some bitter, but when you pull in, what do you do? All right, everybody, better put a smile on that face. We are walking in this door and everything is fine, right? We enter this courts with praise, so y'all better be happy. And you walk in and everybody, hey, how's it going? Oh, great. Beautiful day, right? Beautiful morning. Everything's great and wonderful, isn't it? Praise God to be alive, right? And we know that's not true. I'm just telling you, that is not what the Lord wants from us. That is not what God wants. He doesn't want us to put this facade up of everything's fine and everything's okay when it's not. God wants honesty from us. He wants us to be honest with ourselves. He wants us to be honest with each other. And he wants us to be honest with him. Because here's the thing, God already knows how we feel. He already knows what's going on. So trying to pretend like everything's fine, he knows that we're lying. We might as well just be honest. And this is why, this is why I love what Naomi says. I love what she says because, because that's how she feels. She feels like God has afflicted her. God's opposing her. God's brought her back empty. She, that's how she feels. It's, it's honest language from her. And this is why I love the Psalms because the Psalms are so honest. The good and the bad, the Psalms are just honest. And sometimes I'm reading, I'm like, I can't believe this is in scripture. This is why, again, this is why I love the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms in your Old Testament. So the book of Psalms has 150 different individual Psalms. And, and, and some Bible scholars will say anywhere from, from one third to up to one half are considered what we call Psalms of lament. Psalms of lament. Now, lament is not a word that we typically use. I can't think of the last time I used the word lament in everyday language. I don't know about you guys, maybe you're walking around using that all the time. I don't, right? So that's just not a word that we use. But lament means to express deep sorrow, pain, or grief. That's what lament means. 
And this is all over scripture, not just in Psalms. And we have a whole book called Lamentations. I didn't know this, but that word Lamentations comes from the word lament. And it's written by Jeremiah, who's often called the weeping prophet, or they're just the, the utterly depressed prophet, because he's just, he's just upset all the time. Like he's just like every, overwhelmed by all the brokenness that he sees in Israel. And he writes this book called Lamentations, which is a book of lament. And we've, we've lost that art in today's Christianity, at least in, in, in typically in American Christianity. We've lost this concept of lament. And we need to get it back because it's, it's healthy. So again, we see this all over scripture. We see it with Naomi. Her words are words of lament. We also see it in places like Psalm 10.1. Psalm 10 verse 1 says, Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Psalm 13.1, how long, O Lord, Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 22, verse one, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Or it might say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you've been in church for any amount of time, those words should sound familiar. Those are the words that Jesus cries out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and my words of groaning? Psalm 44, verses 23 and 24. Wake up, Lord. Why are you sleeping? Get up. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide and forget our affliction and oppression? Now, sometimes I can't believe God allows these words in the Bible. And these are Psalms. This is poetry. A lot of this was meant to be sung. Can you imagine singing a song like that in church? Worship music today does not have songs of lament. I can tell you that much. We're missing that but it's biblical. God allows this stuff in the Bible. He allows David and the other authors of the Psalms to write these things. Why? Because that's how they feel in that moment. Whatever they're walking through, whatever pain they're walking through, they feel, God, you have forgotten about me. You've left me. You've turned your face. Psalm 44, you're asleep. God, clearly you have fallen asleep at the wheel. It's time to get up. Wake up, God. Where are you? That's what they were feeling. Not about you, but maybe you, you've been through a season where you're like Naomi and it just, it feels like God has either turned his back on you or he's just decided to dump all of his wrath on you in that moment. So what do we do in that moment? We bring that to God. God wants us to be honest with him. So I've learned over the years, God can handle my emotions. He can handle my emotions and he can handle my cries of accusations and my anger and my frustration. He can handle all that. Emotions did not come as a result of the fall in Genesis 3. We were created as emotional creatures. God gave us emotions. He's not scared off by our emotions. He wants us to be honest. So even if it's in these moments of pain and suffering, God, why did you do this? What are you doing? You're asleep. You've you've abandoned me. You turned your back on me. God, what's going on? If that's how we're feeling, God wants us to express that. God can handle our honesty. So we need to bring that to God. We also need to have people in our lives that we can be honest with. You need to have people that you can can say that kind of stuff to, and they're not going to be scared off. And that's not always easy, right? Like, I don't know about you, but sometimes maybe you've you've been honest with people in your life and you find out later that, that, man, they went to the next person. As soon as they were done that kind of, they went to the next, hey, can you believe so-and-so said this? They said this about God. They said this about what they're, can you believe that? What's going on with them? 
finding their gospel about you, or they're making these, 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 like drawing these conclusions and judgments. You're like, man, I just, I was just having a hard day. And I just thought, I thought I could share that with you. And now you're telling me like, I've just, I'm, I'm lost in despair and I need, like, I'm just so far gone. Like what's going on here? Like, I was just, I was trying to talk. Like we need people that we can be honest with. We need people who can handle our honesty and we need to be people that can handle each other's honesty. They're not going to be scared off when somebody comes and they're like, man, I'm Mara. I'm Mara. I'm bitter. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. There be people who, who can handle each other with honesty, right? We can't dismiss our pain. That's not healthy. We can't just push it down, pretend like it's not there, sweep it under the rug. That is not good for us. And that's not what God wants from us. He wants honesty. We have to grieve our losses. And to properly grieve, the first step is acknowledging what's been lost. Acknowledging our pain. Acknowledging our tragedy. Acknowledging the difficulty, the suffering, the hardship that we're walking through. Naming it and bringing it to God. I told you guys last week that... um, you know, with, with Ruth and Orpah, they, they were married 10 years with no kids and everybody in that time and them themselves probably would have just made the conclusion, well, I'm infertile and I can't have kids. I don't know if you guys have walked through seasons of infertility or miscarriages. You know, it's typically, uh, I don't know why, but that's just not talked about in churches. Um, I don't know why. I have, I have some thoughts on that. But anyways, it's not really talked about that often. And my wife and I, when we got married after a few years, we were like, we're ready to have kids. And I told you guys this last week, we, we walked through years of infertility struggling to get pregnant, praying and crying out to God and, and doing everything you needed to do. And it just wasn't happening. And then in, in that season, when we're seeing all of our other friends have babies and popping out kids left and right, we couldn't. We did finally get pregnant once. And then six weeks later, that ended in miscarriage. And you find this out when you walk through that, that, that 20% of pregnancies end in miscarriage. It's very common. But again, nobody really talks about that. We don't, especially Christian, we just don't talk about that. And once you start talking about it, you find out other people have walked through that as well. But when that happened, because I, I didn't know how to properly grieve, I just, you know what, we're just going to push through this. That happened. Sure. It happened. Whatever. We're moving on. We're moving on and we're just, we're going to get pregnant. Yeah. Like I know it's going to happen. We're going to get pregnant. It's going to be fine. Everything's going to be okay. And I just, I suppressed those feelings. I suppressed that grief and that loss. And no matter how much I pretended over that year that it, that it wasn't there, it was just this cloud hanging over me. I don't know if you felt that way when you've walked through these kind of seasons. It's just this cloud of despair and struggle. And it finally got to the point where my wife and I, uh, we, we needed help. We realized when we, we've come to the end of ourselves and we're not grieving in a healthy way. And we saw a counselor. And I look, I just want you to hear this from your pastor. It's good to do that. That's another taboo thing sometimes in churches. Well, we don't, we don't reach out for help. Well, we got to just you know, muscle through it and trust the Lord. No, sometimes you need help. And we saw a biblical counselor, this, this godly woman who helped us get through that. So if you are in that season, I just want you to hear from me, like I'm here for you. Our church is here for you and, and I can help set you up with awesome, amazing counselors. So I just want that to go out. So anyways, we, we started processing through that grief. And in that time, in that season of finally healthily processing through that, we got pregnant again. And here I am like, oh man, this is almost a year to the day. This is awesome. God, how good you are. Like, praise the Lord. This is amazing. Look how you've, you've totally redeemed our situation. And 10 weeks later, we go to the doctor and we find out there's no heartbeat. And man, I just, I'll just tell you, like I, I had to lean over 
the table in the doctor's office, it felt like I got kicked in the chest. And in that season, because I was able to, to get some tools to grieve healthy, man, I knew the first step was I got to grieve this loss. We have to name it, acknowledge it, and I got to bring it to the Lord. And man, if I could show you all some of my, my journals and things that I was writing in that time, because I, I was a pastor at another church during that time too, you'd read that and be like, I can't believe one, this guy's a pastor and two, that he's a Christian. Because man, a lot of that stuff that I was feeling at that time was like, God, how dare you? You say you're good, where, where's your goodness? Where's your goodness in my life? I don't see it. There's no evidence of that. We're praying for a good thing. You say it's a good thing to have kids. That's what we want. And you're not letting us do it. And, and not only that, you're bringing us to this pain and this loss and this tragedy. What's up, God? How dare you do this? You say you work all things out for your glory. How does this bring you glory? In fact, this, this, this robs you of glory. That's how I felt in that moment. That's the first step, y'all. We have to acknowledge our pain and bring it to the Lord. He can handle our honest emotions bring it to the Lord. Second thing, second thing, we have to remind ourselves of what's true. We have to remind ourselves of what's true in our pain and in our loss and tragedy. And as we cry out to God, we need to balance that with things that are true, with things that are true. We need to remind ourselves of what's true about God and his character, because this is, that's what keeps us grounded. That's what keeps us grounded and straying too far into the bitterness and resentment that's so easy to get to. And that's exactly what Naomi does, right? Like she's, she's blaming God for things. And in that moment, it seems like, oh man, I can't believe you're saying that. But she's also acknowledging something's true about God. And that's that he's sovereign. That's that he's powerful. It's that, that he could have done things differently because he's God. He can do anything. So even in her accusation, she's acknowledging what's true about God. And this is what we have to do. So here are some truths to help us balance out in our pain, in our hardship. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. Psalm 18, 2, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock where I seek refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. And Psalm 40, this passage really helped carry me through in those dark moments. Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3, I waited patiently for the Lord and he turned to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me up from the desolate pit out of the muddy clay and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and they will trust in the Lord. The Bible reminds us over and over again that our God is good, that our God is loving, that our God cares, that our God is in control of all things at all times. And this is important to remember. It's important to remember that even in our darkest moments, God is at work. He's not done with us because we walk through a period of hardship. And look, here's the reality. We may not ever fully understand why. We may not ever get answers. Naomi certainly doesn't get answers. The book of Job provides no answers. It's 40 something chapters of Job crying out in his pain and there's no answers to why. We may not ever know why but we need to remind ourselves that our God is at work. It may feel like he's forgotten us, but he is with us. 
there's this verse I'll read in a minute at the end of Joseph's story in the book of Genesis. And if you remember Joseph, the beloved son of Jacob, he makes his brothers jealous. And, and what do they do? They, they first want to kill him. They decide, okay, we're not going to kill our brother, but let's sell him into slavery. So they sold him into slavery. He gets brought down to Egypt, gets falsely accused and finds himself imprisoned for years for doing nothing wrong. Finally, the Lord brings him out of prison, puts him in a place of power in Egypt and, and shows him, Lord, there's a famine coming, you need to save. And, and through Joseph, the Lord provides food for the entire basically known world at that time during a period of severe famine. And Joseph's brothers come looking for food and they're faced with Joseph. They finally realize who he is and they're just like so broken over their sin. And this is what Joseph tells them in Genesis 50 verse 20. He says, you planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. God is at work. What others may plan for evil, God plans for his good, our good, and his purposes. We can trust in that. We can trust in that. And we can trust that God's going to carry us through. No matter what pain and suffering we're doing. We may not have answers, but what we do have is the Lord and he will guide us and carry us and bring us to the end. And we see here the cry was called the cry of dereliction in, in Psalm 22 verse one, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Well, the next Psalm is Psalm 23 and that's not by accident because Psalm 23 tells us this, the Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a place, a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. God will carry us through no matter what we are facing in this world, he is at work and we can trust in that. So we acknowledge our pain, we bring it to God. We remind ourselves of what's true. And then lastly, and we'll end here. We look for God's grace. We look for God's grace. Again, God is at work, which means there, there are gonna be evidences of his work, evidence of his grace in our lives. And, and we need to, to look for that because again, that's what's gonna keep us from falling into bitterness and despair. So we look for, for ways that God is at work. And even in the life of Naomi, she says she came back empty, but guess what? She, she did come back. She came back home. And who brought her back home? God did. God brought her back home. She came home broken. She came home grieving. She came home a mess, but God brought her back home. And God will do the same for us. We can come back broken and angry and frustrated, maybe bitter and resentful, but he will bring us back. She says that she came back empty, but that's not exactly true, right? She has Ruth with her. Ruth, this woman who has committed herself fully to Naomi. And just try to imagine, like, Ruth's probably standing with Naomi when she says, the Lord brought me back empty. I mean, that's just like, man, Naomi, that's, that's harsh. <laughs> that's, that's a little messed up. But it, it feels like she's empty, but, but, but she's not. God's grace is that he's provided Ruth. And, and we're going to see just how vital that is, that God's going to use Ruth to change Naomi's story around. And he brought her back at the right time. Look at verse 22. Look at verse 22. So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabitess. And they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning 
of the barley harvest. That seems like, okay, cool. Harvest, yeah, sounds great. You know, I don't know about you guys, I didn't grow up on a farm. That didn't really mean much to me. But what we're going to find out in the next couple of chapters is that it's because of the barley harvest. It's because of what's going on in that moment, in that season with the harvest, that God is going to do something incredible, that God is going to change the lives of Naomi and Ruth. He brings her back home at the right time. God always comes through at the right time, doesn't he? feels like he tarries. It feels like he, he takes a while and we can grow impatient, but our God acts at the right time. So what's God's grace in your life? Where are you seeing the evidence of God's grace, even in the slightest bit? You know, maybe it's the people like Ruth that, that he's brought around you. Maybe it's your church family, it's your friends, it's your family as you walk through a season that, that are there for you. Maybe it's in the little ways that he provides like we're going to see with Naomi and Ruth. Maybe it's a little gift from somebody or uh, somebody reaching out or bringing a meal or just, just sitting and hanging out with you. Maybe it's just a, a text from a friend saying, hey, I, I'm praying for you. I got that this week. A buddy of mine that, that I'm very close with, we're close friends, but we're so busy with, you know, he's got three kids, I got three kids, we're both pastors, like a lot going on. So we don't talk that often. It's been a couple of months since we even talked, but just out of the blue, I got a text from him Thursday morning. It's like, hey man, I, th- I was thinking about you. Just let you know I'm praying about you and your family and, and for you guys in the church. And man, I didn't have much going on at that moment. So I called him right away. I was like, man, it's so good to hear from you. I needed that. He's like, man, I don't know what's going on, but the Lord just brought you to mind. I was like, I just need to pray. So I told him everything we're walking through and all the stuff going on and in life and family and church. And, and man, I needed that prayer. And I needed that text. And I told him, man, that was, that was so encouraging to hear. That probably seemed like nothing for him. That took him 10 seconds to send. That made my day. Just little moments of God's grace. The greatest evidence of God's grace that we see, especially in moments of suffering and in the dark days, is the gospel. The gospel reminds us that our God knows what it's like to suffer. Jesus left the, the, the glory and the perfection of heaven to come to earth. And he was born in the little town of Bethlehem. And he was born into to an impoverished family. They didn't have a lot. Jesus throughout his life was mocked. At the end of his life, he was betrayed. He was beaten and, and he went to the cross to suffer in the most awful and painful way by bearing our sin and the penalty for our sin. And God watched as his son took that on. I mean, if you're a parent here, imagine that feeling in that moment. But God gave his only son to die for sinners like you and I. How many of us would give our kid away to die in the place somebody wicked and evil and sinful and an enemy of God. Nobody does that. God does that. God did that. The gospel reminds us that God knows what it's like to suffer. And it reminds us that he is not distant in our suffering. I'll end with this. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 tells us this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Just like Naomi, God wants to bring us back home. So in these moments of pain and suffering, if you're walking through that right now, God wants you to come home. He wants us to draw near. 
It may feel like he's gone. It may feel like he's turned his back. It may feel like he's forgotten, but he hasn't. He's with us. He is present and he is going to carry us through it. So even though we face trial and tribulation and suffering and evil and pain in this life, because of the gospel, those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we can hold tightly to the truth that the evil and pain and suffering and hardship that we face in this life, it has an expiration date. Because what we have promised to us is that one day, We're going to pass from this life into the next and we're going to come face to face with Jesus where he's going to wipe away every tear. And we're going to spend eternity with Jesus in complete perfection, free from pain, free from suffering, free from evil and tragedy and hardship and brokenness, free from all of that. So as we walk through these difficult seasons, church, let us draw near to Jesus. Let us hold tightly to him. Let us fix our eyes on him. Remember that he's with us. Remember that he's carrying us. Remember that he is at work and remember the promise of eternal life. Let me pray for us. And as we pray, we're gonna move into this time of worship and communion like we do every single week here. So if you're new, this is a time for us as believers. If you're here and you've put your faith in Jesus, this is a time for us to recognize and remember and celebrate what Jesus alone has done for us. So believers in the room, I want to encourage you to take some time, spend some time in prayer. The Bible says to prepare our hearts. So maybe you need to spend some time reminding yourself of truth. Maybe you need to spend some time crying out to God in your moment of pain and difficulty. And if you need prayer, I'll be back there. I'd love to pray with you, surround you during this time. There's people here that love you and care for you. So if you're walking through that season, we are here. So spend some time preparing yourself, preparing your hearts, reminding yourself of the gospel. And as you're ready, church, you go to either side of the the room here with these two tables. You, You take the elements, you take the cup and the bread. We eat and we drink and we remember the sacrifice of Jesus that he gave his life, that he shed his blood on the cross for us. So we eat, we drink, and then we come back and we worship our good God and our Savior. Jesus, we thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that you allowed these honest cries in scripture, Lord, that you're a God who's not scared off or not troubled by our honesty, Lord. You welcome it. So thank you, Jesus, for that. Thank you, Lord, that, that, that we have this ability to draw near to you, to always come into your presence. And we may come with thanksgiving, we may come with hearts full and we sometimes may come broken and angry and frustrated. We may come with accusations, Lord, but you welcome us all at your table. So we thank you for that, Lord. Help us as we walk through these moments to hold tightly to you, to cry out to you, Jesus. Surround us with people who love us that we can trust and be honest with, Lord. Thank you for the gift that is your word, for the gift that is your church, for your truth, Lord, that that helps us in these moments, Jesus. So thank you. We love you, Lord. We give it all to you. In your name we pray. Amen.